Tonight is the first night in a series on race that we're beginning. Um, it's digging deeper into a conversation we started um, a while back, um, just in more detail and depth. Our speakers this evening on my right is Dr. Nancy R. Howell. <laughs> she is professor of theology and philosophy Rel religion and Popel professor of health and welfare ministries at St. Paul School of Theology, a Methodist seminary here in town. She has a PhD from Claremont Graduate University, is the associate editor of the Encyclopedia of Science and Religion. Her research examines the impact of primate studies on theological understandings of humanity. She's a member of the International Society for Science and Religion and serves on the broader social impacts committee of the Human Origins Initiative of the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institution. On her right is Dr. Angela D. Sims. Dr. Sims is Vice President of Institutional Advancement and Robert B. and Kathleen Rogers Associate Professor in Church and Society, also at St. Paul School of Theology. She's a doctorate in Christian Social Ethics from Union Presbyterian Seminary, a Master of Divinity with honors from Howard University School of Divinity. Her research examines the connections between faith, race, and violence with specific attention to historical and contemporary ethical implications of lynching and a culture of lynching in the United States. Her research has been supported by the Ford Foundation, the Womanist Scholars Program at the Interdenominational Theological Center, the, Lewis, the Louisville Institute, the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning in Theology and Religion, and the Institute for Oral History at Baylor University. She's the author of Lynched, The Power of Memory in a Culture of Terror and Ethical Complications of Lynching, <laughs> Ida B. Wells' Interrogation of American Terror. She's the co-editor with Katie Geneva Cannon and Emily Towns of Womanist Theological Ethics, a reader, and lead author of Religio-Political Narratives in the United States from Martin Luther King Jr. through Jeremiah Wright. A native of Louisiana, Dr. Sims is an ordained Baptist clergywoman who takes seriously the prophetic imperative to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Would you welcome them with me? Dr. Sims and Dr. Howell, I'm actually, to be honest, I was a little surprised when you said yes to our invitation because I know how very busy you are and I uh, want to know how grateful we are um, for you to be hosting this conversation with us tonight. Thank you. We are grateful to be invited, so thank you. And thanks to everyone for coming. Um, we can tell you're not uncomfortable with talking just by the volume of conversations <laughs> before we started. And you probably came for the food and the conversation at your tables. But we hope you're not uncomfortable or not too uncomfortable not too with what we're talking about tonight. Um, we're going to start with a question for you. So, Dr. Sims, let me have you uh, have a word, too. So it is always good to be invited to share, and Wendy is one of our former colleagues, so whenever a former colleague or former student calls, we try to say yes. So thank you for the invitation. So the question we want to begin with is, why a conversation on race now? Why now? Why this conversation? And what's at risk for some of you by engaging in an open, honest dialogue on race? So we're going to stand because we can't see everybody. And so we'll take a few minutes to um, hear some responses. Don't be bashful. But we also recognize that sometimes it requires just holding the silence on a topic of this nature. 
So why a conversation on race now? Recognizing that we are in the 21st century, um, recognizing that some would suggest um, that we have probably thought we had moved to a post quote unquote racial society, but why a conversation on race now? And what's at stake for each of you if you truly enter into an honest dialogue about this topic? Yes. So why now? I think that um, in the last year, the number of hate groups has gone up dramatically. What is it, like three times what it was in the past? Um, and it's such an explosive issue, explosive in terms of uh, lives being lost. And um, the stakes are high. And I think it, it's, it's time to speak out and um, you know, occasionally I'll get kind of a head flip reaction if I do say something. Mm -hmm. no. So thank you again for others. Why this conversation and what's at stake for you if you engage in an honest dialogue about race? Thank you for asking, Mama Hakima. First of all, I have nothing at stake in having this conversation. So uh, I'm eager to have it. And why now? I think to, the time to have it was always. I don't think anything's changed. I, it's certainly become more visible and bubbled up to the surface. But for some of us, nothing has changed. And this was always a relevant conversation. Society just wasn't ready for it. Anyone else? Why now? Whom did I see? Um, my name is Eric. So. I just think um, you know it's 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 a relevant issue. It's it's been relevant for the entire duration of this country. Um, it's important to move forward um, to advance with progress, um, not be recessive or, or regressive. Um, and so it's important now to um, to that end. Thank you. I saw another hand. Whom did I see in this area? <laughs> Don't be shy. Um, so um, I think why now would be because we've never achieved um, racial justice or racial equality in this country. Um, so why not now? Why not 50 or 100 years ago? Um, and I think what I have at stake personally is um, you know, it. Uh, you're. I'm going to be really uncomfortable a lot having those kind of conversations with people in my life, and that 
is I think a huge barrier for a lot of us is just that that anxiety and that discomfort maybe. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, if not now, when? I think if we had had this conversation ongoing, we might not be in this at the point we are now in terms of racism uh, in this country. Uh, it, as someone has said, it should have been ongoing since, uh, well, I say 1619, where when the first slaves came, but definitely since Reconstruction, because there was a lot of education that needed to be done. I have nothing at stake. I think there are a lot of people in here who do, and I do hope I will be able to help them get over that. Thank you. So Nancy, should we talk about some of our reluctance about having this conversation? So shall we just stand and do this? I think so. Okay. So I share We've with done you. this sitting down before, so I think yeah. we can add standing. <laughs> so let me begin by saying, I share with my colleague, Nancy and I have team taught, and Nancy has served as my faculty advocate for the last 11 years. And I'm always reluctant to be invited to have conversations about race when typically I am the only black person in the room. So it's good tonight to see other peoples of color in this room. Um, I often get a sense that the burden of responsibility for having these conversations resides with people of color. And that often whites are passive listeners and just silent participant observers. So that's some of my reluctance about being here tonight to see you know, how seriously we really can engage each other, how open people are to talking about the reality of race, what race is, what race perhaps is not, and how race intersects with so many other aspects of life. And the problem for me is I feel totally unprepared for this conversation. I started school in 1959. I finished my PhD eventually in 1990 and defended my dissertation in October. And when I got out of school finally, I realized that I had only been taught the standard lessons about race. How good whites were to Native Americans and to their slaves. And I realized I knew nothing. I had rarely been taught a text by an African-American or an Hispanic-American or a Native American, if at all. And so I feel incompetent to be in a conversation, and maybe others do too, because we worry that we could do more harm than good. And yet, my other reluctance is that I always question why people who self-identify as white are unable to have this conversation amongst themselves mm -hmm. and what they might learn by having the conversation mm -hmm. amongst themselves. Yeah. You know what changed things for me? I finally went to, I, I mean, I went to a professional meeting, which I often did, but attended a session that changed my life. When a woman a scholar, an African-American woman scholar said, I don't know why whites always have to invite a black person in the room to talk about race. Whites ought to know plenty about racism. <laughs> but she made a larger point. 
why is it that you invite one person into the room to talk about something when if you want to know about African-American history, you got a library card too? And nothing prevents you legally from reading a novel, a piece of nonfiction, poetry, or seeing film, or hearing music by those who are not white. So if you don't know something, you should be knowing about something. Get out there and do that work yourself. In other words, whites have a lot of work to do, she was saying. And this was, this was 20 years ago, but the lesson is still valuable. And so when I think about the educational deficiencies that you mentioned earlier, for people of color, um, we've always not only had to know Euro-American history and a whitenized version of U.S. history, we've also had to know the black contributions to this country. And so being well-read and, and, and having a broader understanding of what it means to be a citizen of this United States. So shall we talk about um, what it means, this race, and let them look at this clip? Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have you look at a five-minute clip, um, and it's entitled Race, the Power of an Illusion. And it's a five-minute introduction to a multi-part series. It's a little slow here. This belief 
is based on the idea that race is biologically real. All of our genetics now is telling us that that's not the case. We can't find any genetic markers that are in everybody of a particular race and in nobody of some other race. We can't find any genetic markers that define race. And actually, what we're going to generate are billions of copies of a little section of your, of your genetic code. These students are gathering for a DNA workshop led by Cold Spring Harbor Labs teacher Scott Bronson. Marcus, Gorgeous, Jackie, Noah, Hannah, Jamil, and their fellow students are about to explore the biology of human variation. There's another type of DNA. Does anybody know what that type of DNA is? Yeah. Mitochondrial DNA, very good. They will compare their skin colors. They're like not human colors. <laughs> they will type their blood. And they will swab cells from inside their mouths to extract a small portion of their own DNA. Once the sample is ready, they will compare some of their genetic similarities and differences. The students begin the workshop with the same assumptions most of us have. As you begin to look at the data, you might want to keep in your mind who you think you might be most similar to and who you think you might be most different to. I think I found the most similarities with uh, Mr. Bronson or with Carol because we were white males, both Carol and I and both Scott Bronson and I. I think I have the most differences with Carol and the most similarities with Gordy's. She's African-American, I'm African-American. I mean, like, black. I think maybe me and Natalia are most alike. She's Latin American and I'm Latin American. I figured that there would be tons of differences, especially with people who looked so different. To understand why the idea of race is a biological myth requires a major paradigm shift an absolute <coughs> paradigm shift, a shift in perspective. And for me, it's like seeing, you know, what it must have been like to understand that the world isn't flat. And perhaps I can invite you to a mountaintop and you can look out the window and at the horizon and see, oh, what I thought was flat, I can see a curve in now, that the world is much more complicated. In fact, that race is not based on biology but race is rather an idea that we ascribe to biology. So, do you want to ask them those questions that we have? I do. What do you think about human similarity and difference? And when you encounter others, what are your sort of impulsive expectations about race? Anybody ever ask you, what are you? Yeah. Want to tell us about it? I, I guess so. <laughs> Would you please? Yeah. yeah. So uh, oftentimes I get asked, what are you? Uh, as a lot of people, there's an assumption that I'm Latino if they know my name, Jose. Uh, then there's Native American. Uh, and then I've been mistaken for 
South Asian, South, uh, Southeast Asian, so like Filipino or uh, even a, a person from Macau, which is a, an island around China, he says, you look, you look like my cousin. <laughs> so, so I get that often a lot, yeah. so that by, by physical features. Yeah. Anybody else have a story? I've been asked that most of my life. Um, yeah, so I'm adopted, and um, I did not grow up with my biological family or like earning one that resembles me when I was growing up. So um, that was often reflected, and I I learned very quickly how to justify that, like to start talking about that. But um, as I've gotten older, I really resent when people ask me that because I know that that's a privilege that they have. Because if someone is white, they are never asked that. So I, I really do not, it's something that I try to explain to people, well, would you ask me that if, so, yeah. Thank you. Behind, oh, there you go. So not only have I been asked, um, what are you? I've also been asked the, pretty much the same question, but in a different way, where are you from? Um, or when I say that I'm Mexican, they say, well, what kind of Mexican are you? Um, which is code for like, as like placing all Latin Americans into one specific category of being Mexican. So it's basically a lot of like putting people into boxes and I agree with what you said about um, that in and of itself is asking a privilege because you wouldn't, a lot of white people wouldn't ask, oh, what part of Europe is your family from? Like, are you English? Are you Irish? Are you German? Are you Spanish? Um, Italian, like French, nobody would ask that to a white person. They would always ask, you know, where are you actually from? So, yeah. Anybody else? Look, turn around. Yeah. So I'm actually Indian, but I've gotten Hawaiian, Filipino, Mexican black a couple times so it, it just really depends on who's asking and it really wasn't bothering me until um, I saw this CNN video a couple years ago and what they were explaining was it's kind of um, it's a kind of racism where like someone will ask you if it's just I don't mind explaining to someone that I've known for a long time like you know that I'm Indian but if it's a if it's a stranger asking it's just sometimes it's an unconscious way for them to like categorize me so whatever stereotypes are associated with whatever race. So, yeah. Thank you. Okay. How do I get there from here? Is there a map? <laughs> 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 let, me, let, me, let me see. I guess so. Yeah, best way is around. Let's see. Where am I headed? <laughs> I guess if we're really going to be honest, we have to speak, speak truth to what we hear. I am Caucasian, and I get all the time because of my name, which is Kevin Kelly. Oh, are you Irish? Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm half Duke's mixture and half Italian, but there's this assumption I'm one of the good old Irish boys. And I grew up in a family that had a history 
of racism, both for the Irish side, because we sounded like we were Irish, and on the other side during the earlier years of the 20th century on the Italian side. So the family had both of those going for it. So as a Caucasian, I have gotten some of that. I don't resent it, and there's probably some privilege in that, but I do hear it all the time. It's interesting, isn't it? I was just going to say really quickly, um, the only wrinkle that I've experienced that's like this is people ask me where I'm from because of speech, not your appearance. So mm -hmm. someone will see me, and then I begin to talk to them, and they say, well, you're not from around here, right? And I'm just like, I'm from the suburbs, you know, or something. And so, um, so still uh, disrupting someone's expectations of how you might, uh, where you're from because of how you look. So, yeah. yeah. I guess there are many kinds of judgment that go along with uh, visual appearance. Phenomenology is and uh, is not just about how we look, how we sound, how we move and act. What's interesting is how much we seem to fool ourselves. The video says there is no genetic or biological basis at all for the differences we've worked so hard over so many centuries to mean. Yeah, yeah, we've. You know, it's funny, we made all this stuff up. <laughs> Even our national borders are made up. They are not necessary. And I can remember being asked as a white person, um, what's your heritage? And, and the assumption was it would all be European. And usually it was a question coming from someone who wanted to brag about a heritage. Well, my family's white, and we have been from Ireland, or we have been from England, and we're from one of the good countries. What are you? Where's your family from? And so uh, Dr. Sims and I have talked about the illusions associated with race. And you could tell from the introduction that I'm really interested in the sciences, so this video speaks to me, but it reminded me of Charles Darwin and in his work on natural selection and evolution. What's interesting about his work is that he thought he was doing something good for humanity by showing how we're all connected. We are all products of our genetics and environment, and sciences have worked from Darwin's work to show how we are all connected. We, in essence, are all family, and now the sciences talk about the out-of-Africa theory that every member uh, of the human species actually has come from Africa in origin. Of course, what was odd about Darwin's work was this. He went on to talk about how there are higher and lower species. And that's fine if you're a worm, and I'm a human. But, but he said more. He said, in essence, that in particular, he, he called out people in particular. He said, women and Africans are under-evolved. They are not quite as evolved as European males are. And there went his theory, there went his science in favor of the sociology of his day. And so he created a hierarchy. And what was uh, fascinating about it is that a European woman uh, was considered to be more highly evolved than any African, but an African man was more highly evolved than an African woman. 
And so he kind of set up his own hierarchical order of humanity. And this, uh, the really dangerous thing about that was that people who worked more with the social sciences picked up on that, and even the natural sciences, and began to construct false scientific evidence, including craniology and brain size studies. And when the data did not fit what they expected about race, they falsified it. So if you look in very old textbooks from the early 19th century, you'll see um, pictures of skulls of uh, African men or women. And instead of being a human skull, they'll have exaggerated the front of the face to look as if they have muzzles like animals do. When the facts don't fit our biases, we make the facts fit. That also points to the fact about who controls narratives mm -hmm. as we talk about illusions around race. Um, in some of the earlier responses, um, one of tonight's attendees talked about this is a conversation that we should have always had. But a question about having a conversation about an honest conversation about <coughs> race in the US means that we have to be willing to map out the way in which race has been constructed in the US. And someone talked about going back to 1619 to Jamestown, but I would suggest we have to go back further. We have to go back to the, west to the west coast of Africa, to the slave ships, often that bore names of Jesus and John the Baptist. Excuse me, I didn't say Jamestown, I say 1619 to slavery. Right, but when I think 1619, I automatically go to Jamestown, so I apologize. Right, we go back to... That's correct. And so what we're suggesting is that in order to map the construction of race in the U.S., we go back to the transatlantic slave crossing, and we look at the way in which a particular people of African heritage were dehumanized and looked at not as human beings, but as chattel that could be slave, that could be sold and bought on an auction block. We also look at the fact that when we talk about this illusion of race tied to phenotypes, to the way people look, we have to also recognize the one drop rule that was operative in the US that said if an individual had just one drop of African blood, irrespective of how they looked, they too were black. And in most cases, we're talking about enslaved women who were raped by individuals who quote unquote owned them and the product of that rape, those children who often looked exactly like their biological father were not seen as white. And so what does it mean when an individual could pass as white but could not pass as white for a myriad of reasons? That begins to dispel the myth about the way in which people look, also the way in which people sound. But then this whole notion around language and language uh, and the way in which power brokers control the language. So some of the other things that we heard really point to this notion of visible invisibility, mm -hmm. privilege, 
and power. And you talked a little bit, Nancy, about the way in which privilege has operated in your life. Perhaps we need to talk a little bit about the way in which power is able to mask these conversations around race or to perhaps not allow the conversations to move forward at a pace such that change to systems can take place. Yeah, some of our colleagues like Cornell West uh, in his book particularly Prophesied Deliverance have talked about the genealogy of race. And you know, given what Dr. Sims has said, it's interesting to think about what kind of stories you have to be able to tell yourself in order to rape another human being and to call another human being your property. What language do you use to talk to yourself? And how do you construct a way of seeing another person that turns that person into animal and property? It's, it's sort of a frightening thing, but, but the language is such that if you have power and privilege, you, like the scientist, can see yourself as a value-free, objective thinker. You can convince yourself that you were right, that you have the whole truth when you don't. You don't. And you know, now we're so deeply embedded in this illusion of the differences, the racial differences among us, that it would be hard to back out of the language that we use. Um, Ozzie Davis, a long time ago, wrote an article called The English Language is My Enemy. And he, you know Roger's Thesaurus, right? That book where you go for synonyms when you're writing a paper in school and you're tired of using the same word. He looked up the word white. He looked up the word black. Almost every instance, if not every instance, of the use of the word white was positive, pure for example. We even hear in the Christian hymn that we can be washed whiter than snow. But at best, when you look at the word black, there are neutral terms perhaps, but most often they are negative. And so what you end up having embedded in your mind from the language you learn is that white is superior to black. And if you are using that language over and over and over again, it becomes the national language and expectation. It's another illusion. I think too along those lines is that when we think about the way in which terms have been defined and we use for example Black's Law Dictionary which contains a legal definition of blackness but there is no definition of whiteness in that same volume. Um, we also have to talk about the way in which race functions socially the way it functions economically, and the way it functions politically. So you want to start, let's start with Peggy McIntosh's unpacking the knapsack to talk about some of these social ways in which race functions. This is a worn out piece of information um, from 1988. Uh, but it, uh, it actually is an excerpt from a larger piece. It has 50 ways to think about white privilege. Some of you have seen it in class, I'm sure, <laughs> with me before. Um, but for example, the first one is, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. Yeah, as a white person can do that. Number 21, I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. You know, I hardly have, people will come to me and say, what do women think about? But they hardly, they never come to me and say, what do white people think about the Seahawks? 
you know, I don't know, I don't know what they think. It's, so it's fascinating. This, this paper may have some outdated things, and we debated this point before. It says, um, uh, when I go to the grocery store to buy a flesh-colored bandage, I don't have to worry that it doesn't match my skin. But then Dr. Sims said, well, I still can't find a flesh-colored bandage that matches my skin. Yep. We can find Barney, we can find Spider-Man, but we cannot find a flesh-colored bandage <laughs> for Dr. Sims. We also talked about the way in which um, you don't have to worry about being pulled over when you're driving. Yeah. And that for me, particularly in this post-Sandra Bland era, that I do con get concerned mm -hmm. when I get pulled over. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not speeding, I get mm -hmm. concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not afraid if, uh, well, see, I never get pulled over uh, because I have one of those devices in my car to watch that I'm driving uh, safely. But um, if, if a, a police officer pulls up in a car next to mine, I'm not afraid that that officer has a gun. I'm not afraid that I'm gonna be pulled over for no reason. And yet? Um, last spring, I was driving back from Oklahoma City, and I was about 80 miles south of Kansas City, and a state trooper's lights came on behind me, and I signaled to pull over. The state trooper came up, and thankfully, I was on the phone. I asked the person to stay on the phone. Um, state trooper came up, asked if I knew why I was being pulled over. I said no. She said, you failed to signal. I said, but I'm sure I signaled every time I change lanes. She said, yes, but not the last time. So what does it mean when you think you might be being racially profiled? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I lived on the south side of Chicago in uh, the 1970s. I can remember uh, when we drove in cars with black and white people together from our laboratory that uh, it was not unusual to be pulled over for driving with a black person in the car, it, or it seems so. And so what that suggests, Nancy, is that as a society, we talk about the ways in which persons who don't identify as white are racialized, but we assume that white people are not racialized, that there's no way that whites engage in this process of doing race. And so what's required for whites to be able to think about themselves as a racialized people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't have a race growing up. I was just people. And it, do you remember the days when you saw a news report and the story was a black man did this crime? But, but if a white man had done it, you never. Nobody said a white man did this crime. It was you, if you weren't white, it, uh, there had to be an adjective before you somehow. Still do it. They still do it. Sad to say. Sad to say. We still do see these kinds of things. Um, so, and, and I think this is the same complaint I was making about my education. Why did my education not teach me about what it means to be white and what's entailed in that? It's, um, it was a very frustrating thing. Uh, part of what is involved is the normative gaze that uh, Cornel West describes, somehow in Greek classical culture, we started to get a profile of what normal is. And anyone who doesn't fit the norm 
is considered outside. So we have to say something in particular to say what kind of outside the norm is that person. So what Wes's work requires us to begin to think about is not only what those norms are, but who determines what those norms are. And again, we go back to our earlier question. What's at stake when people began to dismantle these normative ways of doing, being, and understanding personhood? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a huge question, so we're going to be here really late tonight. Um, uh, because of my work in the sciences, I regularly am in settings where I point out when um, there is a particular bias in the science being reported or in the methods used because someone is looking at a question from a position of privilege or power and not asking the question about what it would look like if a woman saw the same data or performed the same uh, kind of experiment, or what would happen if an African-American or Latina did the same work? Would the questions be the same or different? Would the observation and interpretation of data be exactly the same? I contend that it's not so, and some of the studies, for example, between science in the Western world and in Japan help to give evidence about that. Standpoint makes a difference in how you read something, how you interpret data, regardless. So what, what ends up happening is, you know, we, a lot of us in the US bow down to the God science. And if science says it, we're going to build our laws around it. We're going to use it to construct political systems and economic systems. And what that means is that those biases begin to be built into every system that is a part of the nation within which we live. And so for that reason, we talk, of course, some about individual acts of racism, but we also talk about the structured inequalities, those that are governed by laws, those are, that are governed by protocols that are normative in our society. And so even in ethics, um, recognizing, again, that there is no value-free space, there is no bias-free space, always concerned about the way in which people's stated beliefs uh, inform their response to moral dilemmas and ethical problems. Also concerned that with any situation, um, being mindful to ask the question, who's engaged in the research? Who's funding the research? Who benefits from the research? Whose voices are included in the research? How is the research pool, the research population, the targeted audience determined? Who's excluded from that and why? And when we talk about this issue of race, I tend to agree with historian of religion Charles Long that one of the reasons we have not had sustained, honest conversations about race in the United States is because we are afraid to tell the truth because telling the truth often will mean for a large percentage of people, particularly those who assume they possess ultimate privilege and power, that everything that they've come to know as, tr as truth has been fabricated upon a lie. And so what does it mean when your entire foundation has to be dismantled and reconstructed? Who's willing to engage in this most difficult work? Mm. 
Yes. I don't know how much interruptions you want in this We're good. dialogue, but I must go back to your point uh, that the doctor um, made about you were not teach what it meant to be white. I think you said mm-hmm. yes, 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 absolutely. So when, talk, when you saw how much privileges whites had, you knew yes. you were taught that I'm yeah. a white, I can do this, mm-hmm. I can do that. So you really were taught. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the pushback on the way I said that because the answer is, of course, you're right. The, the difference is that I was not taught that I was a race and that these were a matter of privilege. They were just a matter of truth in the way things are. So I wasn't even given a critical way to analyze what I was learning about what it means to be white. Um, and, you know, we, we barely brushed against the topic of Christianity. And, you know, it is clear that um, a part of our Christian heritage is in this construction of whiteness and blackness, too. Um, I, I spent some time this week uh, looking at some of the sermons and pamphlets that were coming out in Christianity in the 1800s. And I expected to find almost all of them, you know, uh, pushing particular racial stereotypes about what black is, what white is. And um, I found a whole uh, selection of them that didn't do that. But what they did instead was preach the truth of scripture. And uh, uh, almost all of them went in detail through every scriptural reference to servant or slave, and use that as evidence that slavery and servanthood, or uh, let's translate it, white supremacy and black inferiority, were in fact the way, not necessarily the way God intended, but the way a fallen world works. And if scripture tells us that we are fallen people and that there were slaves in the Hebrew Bible and there are servants also and slaves in the New Testament, then that is the way God intends it for now until something changes. So a number of those sermons were a justification for slavery based on scripture with the argument that this is the work of God's almighty hand and if you deny any part of it, you are not a believer. You are, you are in fact, a sinner. Uh, the best I could find in those sermons was, be kind to your slaves. And I thought, what an illusion that is. To, have, to keep someone in ownership as your property and call that a kindness in any way seems a big part of the lie. And yet it was those lies that gave rise to the hush harbors uh, and to a Christianity that said... That a Christianity that was antithetical to that that was embraced by slaveholding individuals. And also during the early 19th century, we get writings by persons like Ida B. Wells, who wrote uh, Mob Rule in a Christian Nation. We get Frederick Douglass's uh, sermon at Metropolitan AME Church in DC around 1894, where he talked about lessons of the hour that dealt with race issues in the US. And then of course we have AME Bishop Reverdy Ransom uh, in Chicago, who certainly offered a counter position to those types of claims about race that were put forth by individuals who used the gospel to justify slavery. We are nearing the end of the hour, 
So we wanted to ask you a further question uh, from your, uh, uh, of course we want to hear any additions or responses to what we've said, but um, maybe as a part of sparking your thinking, we can ask you this. What kinds of illusions continue in your communities? What kinds of lies continue or uh, sort of stereotypes and unrecognized practices continue in your community, maybe even in your family? Or in your church. In your church, even, yeah. This this is about housing. So uh, Sarah and I, we have a house just east of Troost. And there is a developer that has started to restore houses and build new properties. And I went to meet and speak with him because I was hearing what they were wanting to sell these properties for, which is double what, what we had paid for hours over double what we paid for hours uh two years two years ago and when speaking to this developer he had said you know i i grew up in boston and i loved seeing neighborhoods where on the same block you had high level housing mid-level housing low-income housing all on the same same stretch of land and that's what we want to do here but i also know that this developer is not developing low-income housing or even what would truly be any sort of affordable housing um, west of Troost. They're only doing one half of the equation. And uh, it was was interesting to me because I just don't know how that is anything other than gentrification uh, from a developer standpoint. Uh, so I go to UMKC, and the name of our undergraduate campus library is Miller Nichols, and I, I'm pretty sure he's the one that made that truce divide, right? And like, there's still like speeches, and uh, there's like a computer screen that has all the great things that he did, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't lived in uh, Kansas City all our lives, but we know people who have, and they are still unwilling to go east of Troost unless it's daylight and they're accompanied by other people. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Let me see if I can get around here. Excuse me. I, uh, I really loved your discussion on language and the way that language is used. And I think, uh, I'm not meaning to get political with this, but nationally we have a lot of poisonous rhetoric towards this issue. And uh, I'm not going to name names, but when you can call people who look a certain way a son of a, on national TV for millions of people to hear, it really justifies that. If he can say that, that's okay. It's okay for that attitude to be expressed all over the place. And it's just a really poisonous rhetoric that uh, has been just spread and hasn't gone away since. Okay. When we talk about race in this country and rhetoric, be mindful that this phrase, make America great again, is racialized language often couched in simplistic religious jargon. So a question has to be, 
What is it about America, America that needs to be made great again? And for whose benefit? Ask the questions and also understand the origin of that phrase and its very, very racist initial intents. Right, right. And I would say in most contexts, we should not have to apologize for making what will be perceived as a political comment because that's a way to shut us down, to stop the conversation altogether and make it appear that there's something wrong with those of us who have ears to hear and minds to criticize what we see as unjust rhetoric. And let me also suggest, just as we have said that there is no value-free or bias-free space, understand that there is no political free space either. I wanted to um, speak specifically about um, your comment about churches and like what assumptions we still carry. I think um, the conversation, and this also applies to workplaces, but about diversity as an end goal, as if it has like as if just getting more people of color into a space is like in and of itself a solution um we were having some of these conversations at my church and um i went to a black church several times for like for the first time um and finally i understood i was like that's not the conversation we need to be having because we're not even seeing how white our churches are as like the starting point for any conversation about how to make them more inclusive or less white like we have to start recognizing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a lot of times we in churches are saying, become like us mm-hmm. and you are welcome here. Right. You know, but we aren't willing to change a single thing about the way we have worship or what we teach or how we create space. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I don't really know how to say this any other way, but I sort of view the current church like as a whole like not like I don't know not like the open table but (laughs) I still view a lot of Christianity to be another form of colonization um, especially globally because when we talk about I've always had problems with mission trips in particular and why certain churches or certain communities feel like they have to go on mission when it's specifically to a Latin American country or an African country, and I never hear about people going on missions in Europe or primarily white communities, or even here in Kansas City. If people are going to go to do mission, they're probably going to go to the northeast or east of, or west of Troost, or east of Troost, my bad, um, which are primarily African American and Latino communities, which, what does that say? Like... I just have always had a problem with how the church has always been used as a weapon of colonization, specifically on what are deemed to be racially inferior cultures, which, yeah. Yeah. I'll get back there. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I uh, teach school for a living. I've been doing it for about 16 years. And um, one thing that I tell my students is uh, history and truth is written by the victor. 
And um, the thing that bothers me is this systematic racism is affecting our children. And I see it daily. Uh, when I walk up into a classroom and I see a child's culture not being celebrated. For example, we had Hispanic Heritage Month. No one did anything about it. I mean, my class did, but the, the district didn't do anything. Black History Month, nothing. Asian Heritage Month, nothing. These kids are only taught one type of uh, history, and that's the history that's in these books that's really not even accurate itself. Um, it blew my students' minds when I told them that black history does not start with slavery. When this country first started, you had Africans here in this country that were free. As a matter of fact, you had Africans that fought alongside of the colonists, and then the British saw, wow, well, let's do what they're doing, but let's have these slaves fight. You also had Africans that actually, or blacks that actually owned slaves as well. But they don't tell you that because it'll put you on the same pedestal, on the same playing field. So when these kids are being taught this stuff, then they in turn live a stereotype that's being systematically placed with them. I mean, it, it, it really pains me when I see this. And also when I see what's going on with African-American males in these schools, it hurts. In my school district, I'm the only black that teaches in that school building. I'm the only person of color that teaches English in that, in that district as far as um, middle school. And when you see children who predominantly are of one particular race, but they're not being taught or, or they're not being seen or shown positive examples of what they look like in a higher profession, that's a problem. So um, I, I'm, I'm a very firm advocate of adults teaching their children, teaching children the truth or as close to the truth as possible because it's sad. Because if you're not teaching your child the truth, then you allow someone else to teach your child a tainted version of it. Absolutely. Thank you for that comment because we haven't really touched on all the damage that that kind of violence does to persons who are not white. Uh, and uh, there was a reason Jex Jesse Jackson did such a campaign to tell people they were somebody. You know, and thank you for your work in this school to make that happen too. So I think there's a lot of misperception about the true nature of gentrification. You're a gentrifier too, not just that developer. And gentrification, by my definition, and I'm qualified to create one, is as someone who's lived 55 years east of truce and has seen more change in my community in the last five years than I saw in the previous 50, I define gentrification as an economic, cultural, and spiritual violence visited upon a community uh, by another. And if people have an honest conversation which I don't see happening at all in Kansas City, about gentrification and its horrific impacts, uh, it would really begin to make a difference. Right now, my community, which is Squire Park, my neighborhood, is trying to pass an ordinance to make multifamily housing um, uh, not... Uh, be uh, permissible in the, in the bounds of Squire Park. 
which is a classic gentrifier move that increases homelessness and displaces people. And when people begin to really look at, understand, choose to see uh, the violence that gentrification creates, they're going to have some hard decisions to make, and it's going to be a hard conversation. So I have an adopted Afghani brother, and in second grade, he came home and said, a little, you know, my classmate said to me, you know, you're bad people, you need to go back where you came from. You know, a second grader doesn't learn that innately. But how do you even have that conversation with him saying, you know, explaining where the hate's coming from and why it's wrong without inciting hate, more hate within the classroom or more violence? So I think that's something that we really need to teach even adults because it's starting in the children. It's not starting, um, you know, you, you learn this as you grow, you're not born with it. Uh, so I think that's something that even we just need to be educated on because that was a really hard, very hard lesson for even me to learn or, or go through to coach an eight-year-old on, you know, life because that's, that's really, you know that he's going to have that his entire life. So it's just something to think about. Thank you. Let's take one more comment. We're nearly out of time. Um, what really struck me was when you're talking about language. And for instance, I just read the book Waking Up White. And to have, um, I'm in this class in Seattle called Cultural, Cultural Identity and Locatedness. And if I didn't have that tool to wake up to my whiteness, and um, obviously I wouldn't be as understanding. And what helped me is realizing when we talk about culture, helped me as waking up to my whiteness in the sense that culture is how we shape our, how our realities are formed and to, flat, and to just talk about race is to flatten it. I think privilege comes in all different forms. And so it was helpful for me to start using language for myself of like, okay, what's my culture? What's my identity? What's my locatedness? We had to write down characteristics for each of us in the class on this piece of paper, roll it up and look through it with our eye and then see. And it was a visual representation of like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not good or bad the way I was raised. It is what it is, but it is a choice, and it is a responsibility as adults now to take on these other lenses. And so understanding race as a culture was helpful for, for me to be more kind to myself and my unknowing, but also there's ramification for knowledge, which is action. And so that's what I'm trying to put together right now. It's been really hard, but. Thank you. So thank each of you for participating with us tonight. Um, I would encourage everyone to take seriously the question, um, what illusions are operative within your family, within your various communities, within your church? Not to be content with broad generalizations, but to really be specific, because it's in that specificity that change can emerge. We thank all of you for being a part of this evening and for being willing to speak out during the evening. If you stay with this group, if you stay with Open Table for this series, 
something important could happen in Kansas City. This group could be a start. And, and it will have nothing to do with how well you think Dr. Sims and I have done this evening, but it will be your work, and we're grateful for that. Thank you.